Welcome to the Surplus Podcast. This is our first episode. That's Surplus, C-E-R plus, Cowichan E-R plus, Rachel Grimmick today. If you don't get it, write it down. So I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Rachel Grimmick. She's a psychiatrist. She has eight years of emergency psychiatry experience. She was the previous clinical medical director of psychiatric emergency services at Foothills Medical Center in Calgary. She developed a simulation program in Calgary for psychiatry residents that was focused on emergency psychiatry presentations and is currently working on the latest revision of the Canadian Psychiatric Association guideline on clinical training approaches for emergency psychiatry for psychiatry residents. She's also a PQI participant with a project focused on reducing time and seclusion for patients at the CDHER. Rachel, uh, you're obviously an expert in this field. Thanks so much for coming to talk to us about this today. Thanks, Eva. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about management of agitation in the emergency department. Yeah, I really hope to make this as practical as possible so it's helpful for emergency room staff. So you've dedicated the majority of your career to this topic. Why is it important to you? Well, psychiatric presentations uh, in the emergency department are really common and about 50% of them involve agitation. And we know that mental health presentations to the emergency department are on the rise. And this can be really anxiety provoking for providers. And there's a higher risk of violence in the emergency department. We definitely see this in our department. Sometimes these patients are really loud. They can disrupt the entire department. They require a lot of staff to handle. And that sometimes drives us as medical providers into this fight or flight state too, which makes it really hard to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. It can be so hard to see somebody in distress and psychiatric presentations are complex. They require more time. And especially now with increased eMERGE volumes, it can be really challenging to manage these presentations. Another piece of this is that emergency room providers often get little training in this area, can feel powerless to help folks in crisis. Frequently, there's very little that the hospital can actually do to meet people's needs when it comes to things like housing, finances, and access to primary care. And you know, often they need access to more appropriate community resources that aren't available um, immediately from the emergency department. Definitely no easy answers here. I'm sure in this podcast, you'll be able to solve all these problems for us. Tell, tell me about how this applies to CDH and the work you've been doing. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to help Ava. But yeah, in the last three years at CDH, there have been 74 PSLSs. So those are patient safety learning system events or adverse events that have been filed related to various levels of harm from the use of seclusion of mental health patients in the emergency department at CDH. So in early 2021, a committee of emergency room staff, mental health and substance use staff or MHSU staff, and the hospital quality improvement manager convened to look at ways to improve the care for MHSU patients. And as part of that, I also joined the Physician Quality Improvement Program or PQI program in July of 2021 to learn more about quality improvement methods to better be able to support the committee and address the care gaps for psychiatric patients in the emergency department. And what were you looking to address with your project? My focus was on reducing length of time in lock seclusion. What did the committee do? The committee has been focusing on things we have control over at the local level, like getting a patient phone and getting consistent meals for patients spending prolonged periods of time in the emergency department. 
We also developed two checklists, one for nursing and one for physicians to reduce the amount of time in seclusion and the likelihood that seclusion would be needed. And in this way, reducing the risk of harm associated with seclusion. This checklist really should be best thought of as a tool for clinical decision making. And it was based on the provincial guidelines for seclusion. As you were doing this project, what did you find had the biggest impact for you? There are two things. The first part was the incredibly dedicated and passionate team that I got to work with, which was yeah, really, really a privilege. The second piece was working with our patient partners. And through the Patient Voices Network, we recruited three patient partners who have experienced lock seclusion in other parts of the province. We didn't want local participants for this project to reduce the risk of any conflicts of interest should they need to present to the emergency department locally. And our patient partners contributed really courageously by describing their experiences of being in seclusion and provided us with suggestions for improvement. That's a really unique view of seclusion in the emergency department to hear from a patient. What did they have to say about it? Patients described the experience of being in seclusion as dehumanizing, isolating, terrifying. They felt highly stigmatized, including feeling abandoned, shuffled off, tucked away, and not listened to. They also described not feeling safe in hospital. They felt their basic needs were not met, including being given food and water, and that their rights weren't explained under the Mental Health Act. So overall, really quite traumatic, and understandably, this would impact future help-seeking. You know, it's best to really think about seclusion as a time-limited intervention to manage severe agitation. It's a big deal to remove people's freedoms and rights, and coercive care is appropriately coming under increased scrutiny worldwide, including in British Columbia. And as you can see, it's really quite traumatic for patients and families. It's incredible to hear how people experienced being secluded. Besides this dehumanizing experience, are there other risks that patients have from seclusion? Yeah, probably most importantly, seclusion carries a risk of death, particularly if people are not adequately monitored or medically cleared prior to being placed in seclusion. And it's not uncommon for patients not to be checked on for prolonged periods of time, particularly in light of recent staffing challenges in the emergency department. You bring up the idea of staffing challenges. Is there other things that make this topic timely at this moment? In the post-COVID world, we're seeing increased mental health presentations to the emergency department. This is a trend that was going on before COVID, but it's certainly been exacerbated by the pandemic. Other you know, bigger contextual factors include deinstitutionalization that started in the 1970s when a lot of psychiatric institutions were closed. And there was a promise that there would be more funding for community resources, but that never happened. The other piece is that there's a general lack of inpatient uh, beds And this is particularly so for the higher risk patients who require psychiatric ICU beds. And in the last 10 years now, we've seen more use of substances like methamphetamines, which leads to really severe agitation and psychosis. And then there's huge gaps across the spectrum of care. So lack of outpatient psychiatric options in the community. So as a result, people don't have access to evidence-based care in the least restrictive setting um, and their conditions worsen. They ultimately present to the emergency department. Yeah, this has a huge impact on emergency room staff because they're left feeling really powerless since frontline staff have no control over the availability of beds or access to care in the community. It's such a perfect storm of systemic factors that lead us to, as emergency care providers, to feel, you know, a lot of moral distress when we are faced with these circumstances. What kind of things can we do as the ER staff 
uh, in these cases? I mean, the ultimate solution is that we need timely access to a spectrum of care for people suffering from mental illness, including inpatient, outpatient options, so that people either aren't coming to the emergency department in the same numbers or they get beds when they need them. But in the meantime, continuing to advocate for patients, escalating concerns to higher levels of leadership like the CSOs and managers is an important piece. Yeah, the system is going to be slow to change. And we know that these high level solutions are the ultimate solution. But one of the things you and I have talked about is there's a lot of things we can do as frontline staff to improve the patient experience and the provider experience. So can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, first, I want to acknowledge just how critical the staffing situation has been in the emergency department and the increased volume in the context of COVID and the issues related to access to primary care. But there, yeah, you're right. There's simple, simple things we can do tomorrow to make it easier to work with these complex patients. Some of the things our patient partners suggested is that they would really like to be listened to by emergency department staff and to be more engaged in their care. They often felt that their perspective was not heard. One person said, having more patience with people and if care providers are calm and receptive, it could help patients calm down and be in a better place to communicate. That makes so much sense to me. If patients are saying, you know, one of the things we've said is that we don't like to be yelled at by patients, but equally patients like to be spoken to in a calm way. So I need to find a way as a provider to make sure that I'm feeling calm or appear calm when I'm interacting with them. Yeah, totally. How we approach patients can make such a huge difference. And these skills are really helpful for all of us. And these are skills that I use myself regularly. One of them is good verbal de-escalation, which can be surprisingly effective. I find it really helpful to remind myself that patients often feel afraid and totally out of control during a psychiatric emergency. And so validating any emotions and how hard it is to be in the emergency department can be really helpful. Like an example of a validating statement would be, you know, it makes sense that you're angry right now. You believe that you were brought to hospital by the police inappropriately. It's helpful just to label the emotion, help help people. That's just a nice way to communicate. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, another thing that you can do to help people regain that sense of control and agency is to offer them choices. And this, again, can reduce agitation. So, for example, you know, you have a choice about how we will administer the medication. It can be in a pill form injection. What would you like? That sounds so similar to how we interact with patients who have been victims of sexual violence, where control has been taken away from them in a similar way. Patients who come to the ER under the Mental Health Act have had some of their agency taken away. And so giving that agency back can be therapeutic. Absolutely. You know, and and sometimes care providers also get frustrated with patients who don't seem to listen to instructions. And I find it helpful to remember that when people are intensely emotionally dysregulated and experiencing emotions like panic or rage, their executive functioning is pretty limited. So it's hard for them to think clearly. And it's all emotions. Sounds like my toddlers. That's exactly it. (laughs) So toddlers and adults who are dysregulated don't have full access to their frontal lobes. So the best way to communicate in a situation like that is with short sentences, really simple vocabulary, significant repetition. And it needs The conversation really needs to stick to basic topics until the patient's better regulated and they can actually hear what's being said. It's interesting because when patients are dysregulated, we talked about how that puts the provider into that fight or flight 
place. And so sometimes getting the patient to communicate in a calmer way helps me to calm down and it kind of brings the volume, you know, the volume and the temperature in the room down altogether. Yeah. Yeah, totally. When somebody's yelling at me, I, I know I'm feeling afraid and, and it, it's hard for me to be effective as a care provider. So like what something I might do in a situation like that is to repeatedly request that the patient sit down before we proceed with the interview. And it's also really helpful to tell people like to, to lay out clear behavioral expectations, something like, you know, I really want to be able to help you, but it's hard for me to do so when you're yelling and swearing at me. And it sounds like you're really bringing that back to you then and using I focus language. I can't help you when I'm being yelled at rather than labeling you're a yeller. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to sort of set myself up to be as effective as I can with this um, individual. Another thing that is surprisingly effective is using an ice pack and you can put it just below the eyes on the upper cheeks and hold it there for 30 to 60 seconds. This stimulates something called the mammalian dive reflex, which is powerfully calming for the nervous system and it helps to reduce the intensity of emotions and help pe- helps people to start to think more clearly. It's funny, this technique is something you and I have discussed off of the podcast before, and I started using it for my kids when they're really dysregulated. And I'll confess, sometimes I use it for myself. And I found even personally, it's just something to focus on besides the negative emotions that I'm having. It's really grounding to feel the ice on my face. And then on top of that, this secondary physiologic drop in heart rate and breathing, like I'm being submerged in ice water. Yeah, totally. It's it's amazingly effective. Of course, this is something you can only use with a patient who's cooperative. So the best kind of patient in the emergency department might be somebody who's really anxious or um, somebody with borderline personality disorder who's experiencing significant emotional dysregulation. Since you and I have talked about it, I've tried it with a few patients and I found it more effective if I give the patient a bit of a preview to say something like, this is going to sound really weird, but what if we try this technique and here's why, then I find people are a little bit more receptive to it rather than just, you know, smashing their face with an ice pack. <laughs> totally. Definitely takes some buy-in. It is a bit of an odd, odd request, but uh, yeah, the, the feedback is pretty consistently for most people that is really helpful. Any other hot tips that you like to use for people who you can verbally deescalate? Yeah. Another really helpful quick technique that you can use in the emergency department is teaching somebody paced breathing. Basically, paced breathing is where you breathe out for longer than you breathe in. So like breathing in for four counts, out for six, or in for five and out for seven. And again, this also activates the parasympathetic nervous system. Another technique you could consider is progressive muscle relaxation, where people progressively tense and relax muscle groups throughout the body. And this is something they could do, you know, while sitting in a stretcher. And it's important to comment that none of these techniques are going to work for everybody. But for somebody who's only moderately dysregulated, you might be able to get them into a situation where you can avoid using medication simply by using these techniques. Being in the ER is so stressful. Are there other things that we can modify to help people feel less stressed when they come to us? I like to think about the HALTS acronym. So... The H stands for hungry or hormonal. A is for angry. L is for lonely. T is for tired. S is for sick or scared. And then I add the 
a peon for pain. Um, so when we attend to these kind of things, it can really help people feel less stressed. And that includes, yeah, basic things, food, water, warm blanket. And sometimes, you know, a sandwich can make all the difference. And I like to think about that as the sandwich therapy. Definitely. I mean, what you're describing is applying basic human compassion, speaking to people respectfully, attending to their basic needs in order to help take people out of a very stressed state into a slightly less stressed state. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, compassion is taking action to alleviate suffering. And there's a lot of suffering in the emergency department. And when we are able to do something to effectively alleviate suffering, it helps to mitigate against burnout and empathy fatigue. So I tried a sandwich, I tried some ginger ale and a blanket, I've done verbal de-escalation, I've offered skills, and it hasn't been helpful. Then what do I have next as a provider? Oral medications would be the next appropriate step, unless there's any acute safety concerns, and then you would want to involve security and think about intramuscular medications. So if we're starting with oral, what do you recommend? First, I would establish a provisional diagnosis for the agitation. So if the agitation is secondary to a medical cause or delirium, I would treat the underlying cause first, and the underlying etiology would dictate whether benzodiazepines or atypical antipsychotics would be most appropriate. If the agitation is due to a psychiatric condition like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, then atypical antipsychotics in conjunction with benzodiazepines are preferred. Atypical antipsychotics are preferred over typicals because of the lower rates of dystonia. And it's important to talk about this verbal de-escalation techniques and the use of oral medication, but we know sometimes in the emergency room, things get out of control. The patient's trying to throw their tray at me. I feel like they're trying to kill me. Sometimes they are trying to kill me. What do I do then? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's terrifying and awful. So yeah, obviously we need to look after ourselves, um, make sure that other staff as well and patients are safe and so yeah when you're in a situation like that getting security involved immediately and then looking at involuntary measures that are needed it's also important to remember that we want to use the least restrictive interventions for the shortest duration of time on that note physical restraints really should be used as a last resort because they carry such significant risk like sudden cardiac death rhabdomyolysis broken bones positional accidental asphyxia and because of these risks, some U.S. hospitals are moving towards policies where they don't use physical restraints anymore. So if I'm going to go IM medication, what do you like to start with? So with intramuscular medications, just in general, the goal is to use the minimal amount of that chemical restraint to achieve calmness. So the goal is calmness, not sedation. And I just want to make mention that there's no rationale to support previous practices of rapid neuroleptization, whereby patients were given large cumulative doses of medications in a short period of time to induce sedation. So for the most severely agitated patients, a combination of Haldol or Loxapine with Ativan intramuscularly remains a really effective option. You know, as an eMERGE doc, ketamine is another option, but that's more in your area of expertise. If you're going with an antipsychotic, uh, you're a psychiatrist, that's what you like the most. How do you pick which antipsychotic if you're going for IM for chemical restraint or helping to calm a severely agitated patient? In this context, loxapine is probably the preferred option. It is commonly used in uh, many major Canadian centers like Vancouver and Toronto. It certainly seems to be the practice at CDH. 
So what you could do is loxapine 25 milligrams intramuscularly and Ativan 2 milligrams IM, which is roughly equivalent to Haldol 5 milligrams and Ativan 2 milligrams IM. And loxapine, if you're not familiar with it, is a mid-potency first-generation antipsychotic, which can be very effective as a chemical restraint, either alone or in combination with benzodiazepines. And it's not as potent of a dopamine blocker as Haldol, so there's a lower risk of EPS, which is why it's preferred. Haldol is, is a really effective medication, but it does carry a high risk of extrapyramidal symptoms like dystonia. And dystonia can be terrifying for, for patients to experience. It's important to remember that there's a high risk of dystonia in younger antipsychotic naive patients. Part of why I care about that as a psychiatrist is that if people have really bad experiences with antipsychotics initially, then it really impacts their willingness to engage with treatment later on. And so ideally we want to reduce the risk that they have any any side effects. One thing, if you are going to use Haldol, it, the risk of Haldol is lower with Ativan. And another benefit is that Haldol and Ativan can be mixed in the same syringe. So when possible, you prefer loxapine because the lower risk of EPS, but the disadvantage of that is lorazepam and loxapine can't be mixed in the same syringe. If Haldol is used, the Ativan can go in the same syringe, which would be the preferred way to give it. Yeah, it's one one needle. Are there any risks we should think about, particularly when we're thinking about IM medication here? Yeah, the other thing I just want to mention is that there is a risk of cardiovascular collapse if you combine intramuscular olanzapine with intramuscular Ativan. It's part of the reason I, I personally avoid intramuscular olanzapine. The other piece is that the time to onset of IM olanzapine can be up to 45 minutes, which is quite a bit longer than other options. My nursing colleagues have frequently said they find it's not as effective as Haldol and Ativan or Loxapine and Ativan. So the PO ver- or sublingual version of olanzapine is really effective if we're going an oral route, but if we're going IM, it sounds like loxapine or Haldol would be a better choice for an antipsychotic. Yeah, in combination with a benzo. Excellent. There are a lot of resources that can help choose medications in the management of the severely agitated emergency department patient, and we'll link to some of those when we share this podcast. In the couch and emergency department, when we've decided a patient requires seclusion, You talked about these risks of death. How do we mitigate that when we have to seclude a patient because of the circumstances of their presentation? Yeah, unfortunately, there are cases of people dying uh, while in seclusion. They die for a variety of reasons, including medical etiologies for psychiatric presentations that weren't assessed or addressed. There could be the risk of oversedation with medications that depress the respiratory drive and without any monitoring. Then there's interactions between prescription medications and street drugs. And if people have access to means, they can die by suicide as well in seclusion. So pretty high risk. At a minimum, a medical assessment should include vital signs. If they're too agitated to get vital signs initially, then we should get vital signs as soon as safely possible. And patients requiring seclusion should be in hospital attire to reduce their access to things like weapons or street drugs or other prescription drugs they may have on them. One of the most important things to reduce your medical legal risk is to document a normal set of vitals and assure that you have addressed any acute medical issues. Talking about medical issues, obviously when a patient is severely agitated, our ability to perform investigations in the emergency department is limited. Once the situation is more under control and the patient is calmer, what investigations are important for you? 
So the standard panel of blood work that is helpful in an acute inpatient setting from a psychiatry perspective is CBC electrolytes and extended lights like calcium, magnesium, phosphate, creatinine, liver function tests, TSH, and B12. If you're able to order that, that's fabulous. We probably won't need to redo any blood work unless there's more extenuating circumstances. ECGs are important for anybody who's being admitted to psychiatry because most of our medications prolong the QT interval. Uh, and obviously, if there's any personal family history, cardiac issues, and if they use street drugs. Urine tox screens, I, I know from the eMERGE perspective, it won't change your disposition, but it does help us in psychiatry. So the sooner it's collected, the more helpful it is. So we appreciate if you're willing to do it, but understand if you don't. The last piece would be brain imaging. And so if there's focal findings on a neurological exam or it's a new psychiatric presentation over the age of 50, those would be clear indications to order a plain CT of the head. Well, I'm so thankful that you took the time to chat to us about this topic. I really appreciate your insight into the patient experience of seclusion. It's a great reminder to us about why it's important to be judicious about our use of it. And these are really helpful resource in terms of the medical management of agitation in our emergency department at Couch and Hospital. So thanks for sharing your expertise today. It was my absolute pleasure to chat with you, Ava. Thank you so much for having me. And if people have further questions, I'm happy to make myself available. Well, that brings the end of the first surplus. That's Couch and ER plus Dr. Rachel Grimmink to a close.